From the Bill Moyers Archive, Faith and Reason, filmed at World Pen Voices Festival in 2006. Now adapted for audio. Well, if your God is going to drown the world, if your God is going to bring a flood, then why don't you pick a different God? Anna Provost talks about the dilemma of worshiping a God who plays favorites. That's in this episode of Faith and Reason. Hello, I'm Bill Moyers. Anne Provost, Belgium's prize-winning writer of children's books, was in New York to attend the Penn Writers Festival on Faith and Reason. You can tell me a story that really happened and could happen, and it would be useful for me, because maybe you would teach me how I can cope with grief. But what you're doing in a fairy tale and what you're doing in myth is you're telling stories that can't even happen. What do I buy for that when I have a crisis? She's written several provocative novels for young people, treating such subjects as diverse as sexual abuse, guilt, penance and mercy, the seductive power of fascism, and the story of Noah and the Ark during the Great Flood of Genesis. Its theme, what happens when the boat is full. Anna Provost, if you had been living when God told Noah to build an ark to save a chosen few from a terrible impending flood, and you learned that your name was not on the passenger list, that God intended to drown you, would you choose another God? I certainly would. (laughs) And that's really what the story that I wrote is about. This whole question of what happens to you if that's your verdict, if that's your future, if that's what your God is planning with you. It's hard to worship a God who plays favorites unless you are on the invitation list, right? Well, of course, we are talking here about an Old Testament God, and I'm very interested in that God. How did you get interested? Well, I used to live in the United States for a while, and back then already I was collecting children's books because, you know, Deep down, I'm a mom, you know, and I, before I had children, I have three children. Before I had children, I was already collecting their books, you know. (laughs) And there's a wonderful book that I'm sure many people here in the United States will know or remember. It's a picture book by Peter Speer, and it only has pictures, but it's the story of Noah and the Ark. It's an old book. And what you see at some point is you see the animals embark, And then you'll see a bunch of animals sitting outside in one frame. And then in the next picture, you'll see they all have wet feet. And in the next picture, you only see the trunk of the elephant right above water level and the nostrils of the giraffe. And in the next picture, all you see is water. And that was really, really confrontational to me. And that's really what made the twist in my head thinking, you know, Let's look at this story from the other side, because it's such an interesting story. Well, your account looks at the story of Noah and the Ark from the flood up, from the victims, from the drowning people, the people not only From the people in the shadow. (laughs) The people in the shadow of the Ark. The original story in the Old Testament looks at it from God's angle and Noah's experience. If you're going to report on a battle, you can always tell it from the side of the winners and of the losers. I'm not saying that in my book 
I change the winners and the losers, but I change the perspective. And it's always very useful because even when we talk about history in terms of war and peace, what we say is completely colored by who turned out to be the winner. I mean, how would we have spoken about the Germans if the Germans had conquered us all? Then we would have been much more oblivious and our attitude would have been completely different. But of course, I will talk to people all the time who will say, this is my childhood story, you know, you're taking it away from me because I always saw it as a very positive, gentle, optimistic story. And I never thought of the people who were left behind and I don't want to think about them because it's very confrontational. But that, of course, is what, as an author, you want to do. Did you ever read the novel Schindler's List? Or I see saw the movie. movie. You saw the movie. I saw the movie. Do you know that the author, the fellow who wrote that, Thomas Keenley, he called his first draft Schindler's Ark because he oh, interesting. because he thought the Ark was such a great metaphor for what Schindler himself did in Nazi Germany of saving 800, 900, 1,000 Jews from doom. Yeah, but there again, you would have a very strong sense of saving the people who are innocent. Well, I think the story of Noah and the Ark is really saving the people who are good and thus condemning all the others, which to me is a very different matter. And that's what really interested me in this story. For me, looking at that story, I don't necessarily think that this is a saving because the flood is coming the order, you know, the idea of the flood is coming from that God. He is choosing. You know, he's not choosing because he wants to save the people for an evil that he doesn't have any power over. It's his evil, which is the flood. And that's a goldmine for an author. At first you think he's saving a good man from a calamity. Then you realize he's saving Noah from a good God who is also a bad God. This God is one and the same, good and bad. Right. And this God is destroying his own creation. So you wonder, you know, why do you create something that will turn out to be this bad? And then you're going to punish them for it. Maybe there's something went wrong in the making. Not only that, but he chooses Noah, who we thought was a good man. But the moment the flood is over, Noah comes off of the ark, gets drunk, abuses his grandson. Exactly. I mean, twice in a row, God has messed up. Right. Doesn't say much for intelligent design, does it? (laughs) See, I think that's the whole power of this story, is that you think at first sight that this is a black and white story. And then it turns out that the good guy has a human character and is diverse and human and a psychological mess. And that's where the storytellers come in and want to know more about this man. Because that's exactly what's happening in this story, is that you don't get away with interpreting it as a good against a bad story. It's more complicated than that. What conclusion did you reach from your research about what God means when God says, I will save the righteous? Who is righteous? What is righteousness? I'm suspicious towards any group of people saying that they were chosen. Because throughout history, and I'm not only looking at the Jewish historic line, but every people at some point probably has said this. They've said, 
this group of people is the chosen. Now, what strikes me is that never ever in history do you have a group of people that says, well, here's us, but that group there, these other people, they're chosen. So whenever you have a proclamation of being chosen, it's always a self-defining process. It's always the people who are chosen who say they are chosen. They never say that about the other. They always say that about themselves. If you're going to do that as a group, if you're going to say, I'm chosen, it loads you with a very heavy burden. And the story, once the people are on the ship, is very much about the feeling of guilt that you get by saying, we are superior. Did you write this story as a mother, a mother of three children? Because I've often thought of the children who died in the great flood, that they were neither righteous nor unrighteous, and yet they perished by the tens of thousands, if you mm. want to believe this story. They play an important role in the book, where you, you know they're drowning, and some of them, they're wearing beautiful gowns because they were loved by their parents. And, you know, no parent will ever think, I have a bad child, it deserves to drown. It's an old question, you know, why must the innocent die? We've all heard the cry, why did the bullet get my buddy and not me? Why was I the only one to walk away from the crash? Why did cancer take my brother right. and not me? I mean, this is one of the oldest questions in the human experience. I would even take this a step further, and I would think that this moments that you're describing in life, which I call the fatal instant. Um, the fatal? The fatal instant in life. You the know, moment something radically changes. Where it changes forever and there's an element of irreversibility where you cannot go back in time. You know, it's the moments in life you experience where you say, I wish I could turn back time. I wish I could change the, what do you call it, the fingers of the clock or the Hands of the clock. The right? hands of the, the fingers, I call it. It's all right. I think everybody at some point in his life experiences that. And of course, the most ultimate moment in your life that this happens to you is your own death. But then you're not going to contemplate about it anymore. But it happens before your death. It happens when something happens to your children. It happens in all the examples that you give, the cancer that strikes your brother. I would think that that's not only the crucial question in human life, but it's very much the definition of what literature is about. It's about how this comes about, how this happens to the character, whoever that is in the book, and then how this character copes with it. When I write books about gods or authors who may think they're the same, changing time and playing with time, that may be a very interesting exercise for my brain, but what will I do with that knowledge the day my fatal instant has arrived? What will I do with these stories if my child crosses the street and it dies in front of me and I want to turn back to time and I can't? Because, you know, this whole philosophy or this whole thinking about literature, it helps us, it makes it richer, it enforces us, it empowers us, it emancipates us for the big moments in life. Does it? What do I buy? the moment something really bad happens to me for these stories. I've given this a lot of thought because it seems so easy. It seems so easy for a writer to do what is impossible. You have so many situations, especially in children's movies, which I find pretty 
it worries me, where a bunch of people will be standing around a person and this person is dead and they'll be mourning. And then suddenly you will hear a cough. <coughs> and then the eyes will open and it appears that the person wasn't dead. So what this filmmaker, the movie maker, is doing is he's reversing time. Somebody's dead and then the next second turned out to be a fake. He's alive. Happy ending. Rainbow. Rainbow. We can do that in stories, but what do we buy for it when in the real life we experience that nobody starts coughing, nobody opens his eyes, people are really dead. And I also want to know what this does to our children, you know, watching these movies over and over again where people always nearly die, but they never do for real. But don't you think people are looking for in fiction and in movies? what many people are looking for in religion, to slip free from time, to become like God, timeless. Doesn't that explain the hunger for God as well as the hunger to read, to escape the body and time? There's definitely a big parallel between those two, and definitely people are looking for the same things in religion as they are in literature. I'm pretty convinced of that. Then again, I think we have to be aware of that. I wouldn't dream of wanting to define my art as a way of escapism, a way of getting away of the reality that we really, you know, have to admit that we can't quite cope with. In that sense, I would think that religion or faith also has to reflect upon itself and wonder, what is it we're looking for? We don't want religion to be a kind of escapism. We want it to be more than that, right? We wouldn't want to establish a whole philosophy around something that is really trying to get away from reality. But then my question would be, why do you have to move that outside of yourself? Move it inside of yourself and it will be there. You can find it there. It doesn't need to be... You can find what? The mystic, the religious experience the experience that I would call transcendence, the feeling that you can have in your fatal instant, you don't necessarily have it, but you can have it if you want, that your fatal moment in life, the moment that you feel everything is turning and twisting, does not necessarily have to be a bleak, empty hole, but it also can give you that moment of power or insight that even though something terribly is happening to you at that moment, you can and you will be able to do that maybe through literature or religion, you can feel related with all the other people in history and all the people in the future that have gone through the same thing as you did. And I think that's exactly what people are looking for in religion, this support, this feeling of I'm carried by others who went through this. You're listening to author Anna Provost and Bill Moyer's 2006 Faith and Reason Conversation. There are so many questions come to one when reading In the Shadow of the Art, but there was one question that haunts me in particular. I mean, can you trust a God who doesn't get it right? That's one of the questions, of course, that Rihanna, she's the main character in the book, is asking. She says, well, 
if your God is going to drown the world, if your God is going to bring a flood, then why don't you pick a different God? So to me, that is the question I want to ask. Why would you trust a God that at this moment doesn't come back to give us the right book? You know, through history, he's given the Jewish people a book and he's given the Christians a book and he's giving the Muslim books. And then there's big similarities between these books, but there's also contradictions. I would think that he needs to come back and create clarity and he shouldn't let us fight over who's right. He should make it clear. So my personal answer to your question, should we trust? A I God wouldn't. who doesn't get it right. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would think if this God isn't in me, because for me, if you ask me, does God exist? I will say, of course he does. He does in the heads of all these people who believe in him. There's a great essayist in Belgium who wrote a wonderful essay on the parallel between art, love, and religious faith, in the sense that she points out that the love that I feel for my man, you know, for my favorite, my beloved, is there. It exists. Nobody will doubt it, but nobody else sees it because I'm the only one in love with him. To me, religion follows the same pattern in the sense that God is there because he's there for the people that keep him in their heads and they keep him as a sort of a lantern to follow, to find the way. But for me personally, I feel he has to stay there. He has to stay in those heads because if people are going to bring him outside their heads and say, well, I'm here and he's there. And that's what he's asking me to do because it's in his books. Then the ethical responsibility that I should feel is there. It's no longer here. And that's risky because I can push the ethical responsibility away from me. If he's going to stay in here, I will know that he's in me and I will always remain responsible. Is there no God in your head? I think there is, but... Very often when I speak to people who believe in God and I say what I believe, the relation is so close that I think we all believe. We only define it differently. What I believe in is the strength that can come from an ethical conscience and that we should all nourish and try to educate and that we should try to have. And when I define that for myself, it's probably going to come very close to the definition that most people who believe in God have of their religious beliefs. So we're very linked, only I don't call it God. But it's the same concept. I call it ethics. I think there's a genius in your creation of the young girl in your book whom you have stowed away. Right. One of Noah's sons stows her away on the ark. So she's the hidden ninth passenger, right? She's the unconsciousness of these people. She's what's going to come back to take revenge because it's chewing on them. They know that what they've done wasn't right. So she's like the bomb ready to explode in their faces. And she's there on purpose because she's the mirror. She will hold it 
in front of them after and say, what on earth did you do by choosing yourself? Why didn't you give your space to a child who for sure is innocent, too lame? Why didn't you push overboard these animals and move in people? She's the consciousness of the whole bunch in that ship. As well as the conscience. Yes, yeah, a conscience, that's the word I was looking for. Well, both work. Right, yeah. She makes them aware, right. the consciousness, but she also the delivers the imperative, right? Right. right. Well, do we have a contribution and does it matter what we do? That's the ethical dimension you're right. talking about. Right. What is the message of In the Shadow of the Ark? There's a 500 in every page. I can give you a couple. One of them definitely is that the story of people who get a spot or get room on the boat is not over yet. That we still are fighting for a spot on top of everybody else. The pyramid is still there and everybody's struggling to be above. And that we're leaving out many people. That we should build a bigger ship. That implies all. That we have messages of doom hanging over us and that we're not reacting to them that it is dangerous to tell the others that you've been chosen, that there is the possibility to escape through solidarity. You can smuggle stowaways on board if you want. You can try. That it is worth putting your honor or your life or other things at risk for making a big gesture, that some things are worth a lot. That's just a few of the messages. And I'm sure for each message that I just conveyed, I could give you a completely contradictory one because I can be very pessimistic <laughs> as well. So I think there's also messages there of the impossibility to educate us as a human kind, our stubbornness to learn, our always repeating ourselves and making the same mistakes from history are not learning from history, that is in there also. In the shadow of the ark. Thank you very much, Anna Provost. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Visit BillMoyers.com to learn more about the Faith and Reason series. <laughs>